Father God, thank you, Lord, just for the morning. Thank you for the day that you've blessed us with. And yes, Lord, I pray even this morning that today would be the salvation for some. We thank you for bringing us here together to Calvary Bible Church. We thank you, Lord, just for your blessings. We thank you for your love and your grace and your tender mercies. Your grace is enough as we sang this morning, Lord. And Father, may this whole morning just be about worshiping you and honoring you and praising your son. And Father, now I pray that you would help us to to worship you through the teaching of your word, that, Lord, you would, well, we know we have your your spirit-empowered word, and, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be spirit-empowered listeners, that we would take in your word, that we would rightly divide it, that we would understand it, that we would seek to diligently apply it. And we just will give you all of that glory and honor that you deserve because of that. And we pray all of this in your son, Jesus's name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started in on chapter five of first Thessalonians. You're like, oh man, no illustration. We'll get there. I got to start this first. Then we'll get to our, our illustration this morning. But we started chapter five where Paul continues with this theme of eschatology, end times events especially pertaining to what we have come to call the rapture, a time when God will remove his church, both the living and the dead, and bring them to meet Jesus in the clouds, excuse me, with glorified bodies. This then kicks off this period that we've been talking about lately of judgment and wrath upon his creation known as the day of the Lord. And part of Paul's reason for explaining this to the Thessalonians is that they they had questions about what will happen to to those who have died as Christians, even some of our loved ones who have died as Christians, and and whether the rapture and the day of the Lord had maybe even already happened. They were under some persecution at the time, and and they weren't quite one hundred percent clear as to what was going on, and so Paul answers their questions, and he does so now by contrasting those who will not escape the judgment and wrath of the day of the Lord versus those who would be rescued from it. Last week, we started the first two points of four that were meant to encourage and build up the Thessalonian believers, and consequently to encourage and build us up here at Calvary Bible Church as well. And when we were in our text uh, last week, we began with the fact that there is a division of people. How many kinds? Two. Two kinds, right? There it is. Two kinds. We have those of the darkness, those of the night, and we have those of the light who are also those of the day, meaning we have unbelievers and we have believers in the world. Just that, just those two kinds. In, in spiritually speaking. Then our second point, we focused on the deeds of darkness. And we understood that the deeds of uh, oh, darkness versus light, darkness deeds are sleep and drunkenness. Sleep in that sense too of just completely spiritually dead, apathetic. Um, and then the light, of course, was that we would be alert 
and sober. And to give us some extra helps in being alert and sober, we, we understood too that we need to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and we have to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I have something that I, I want to show you. This is kind of our, our opening illustration time, if you will, and it's a timeline. It's a, a, a simple timeline. It's not exhaustive. We didn't, I didn't put everything on this timeline that we could have put, but I wanted to give you some kind of visual for all of the things that we have been talking about over these last several weeks. It's a timeline of end times events and how things will play out. And this timeline I would also share with you is something that is reflected in the doctrinal statement of Calvary Bible Church. And we'll go through it and then we'll, we'll leave it up, uh, up there on the screen for a, a good chunk of our teaching time. So as we go through some of these things, you can refer to it and kind of see where we're at. So that being said, we'll go ahead and go to our uh, timeline. You do I have to go ahead and hit it to do that? All right, and there's, there it is. That's it. There, good. Now, now you get it, okay? I wish that was it. I... <laughs> okay, good. You can see that. So obviously our, our cross there and our arrow represents Jesus, Jesus's time on this earth, right? His death, burial, and resurrection. And then what happened was the arrow pointing up is, of course, his ascension, him returning back to the Father to sit at his right hand. And that then ushers in what we call the church age. Guess what age we are in right now? The church age, right? So we are the church, and that is we are a part of the church age. Then at some point, could be now, could be now, no, not yet, but we will have the rapture. We will have the rapture, and that's what we've talked about from uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, right? The end of chapter 4, when those that are uh, believers who have died will first uh, rise up to meet Jesus where? They will meet him in the air. And then, of course, those who are alive will also rise and be raptured and meet Jesus in the air, and they will be given their glorified bodies, <clears throat> That then kicks off what we have been talking about in terms of the day of the Lord and, and this judgment and wrath time of God upon the earth, upon wickedness, upon sin, sinners. And, and we understand that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it this morning, in the context of a seven-year period that we have come to call the tribulation period. Now, in that seven-year tribulation period, it will often get broken down into two halves. You will have the first three and a half years, followed by the second three and a half years. And the, the midpoint is typically, we understand, when, <clears throat> when the uh, man of lawlessness comes into the temple, and we have the abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple. And that second three and a half years, as you'll again see this morning, we call the Great Tribulation. Then... That will bring us to Christ's physical return to earth, right? At the rapture, he's just in the air, he's in the clouds. Then he actually comes down to the earth. And of course, at his coming, he makes war with his enemies. And he sets up his millennial kingdom. This thousand-year period, we call it the thousand-year reign of Christ. A literal thousand-year period where he rules and reigns from planet earth. Then... Uh, at the end of that time, and, and we should mention too that uh, prior to that rule and reign, Satan is uh, bound. He is, uh, he is in the, the abyss, um, the uh, uh, false prophet, 
and uh, the beast, who is the Antichrist, have been already sent to the lake of fire. That happened back at his second coming. We have this thousand-year reign of Christ. All kinds of cool stuff is going to happen during that time. We don't have time to get into right now. And then at the end of that, he releases Satan for a, a period of time, a short period of time. Satan tries to deceive the nations again until he finally uh, sends Satan into the lake of fire as well. And then that is uh, when we have the great white throne judgment of Christ and all unbelievers, even hell itself, is put into the lake of fire. After that point in time, then there will be uh, a destruction of the current heavens and earth, right? We understand that's by fire, and then the Lord recreates, and we have the new heavens and earth, which then ushers us all into what we call the eternal state, where we live with Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. So there you go. That's your, that's your little uh, timeline there. And like I said, we'll leave that up uh, for a, a chunk of our time this morning as we go through things. And you can kind of, like I said, see it and, and, and refer to it and kind of help you understand just the, the order of events that we believe the Scriptures teach. Why don't we go ahead and uh, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and why don't we go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is again verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this, now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Just to refer to that again, because we mentioned the day of the Lord, and we understood too when we talked about the day of the Lord that it will be in that tribulation time, God's judgment and wrath. But there's also another mentioning in Scripture in in Second Peter where we have then the the next point of the day of the Lord, which is the destruction there um, before He recreates the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> so. This morning, we get to our latter two points. We had points one and two last week. Now we're at points three and four. And our third point is this. We're going to talk about destinations for darkness versus light. Or those that are of the darkness versus those that are of the light. What is their destination? And first we will look at darkness. Which is, from our text, God's wrath. Look again at verse nine. For God has not destined us for wrath. Now, the us, to 
whom Paul is referring are believers. And since we know believers are those of the light, this tells us that unbelievers, those in the darkness, are indeed the ones destined for God's wrath. Now it's time to talk a little bit about this wrath and what goes hand in hand with God's wrath, but of course his judgment. And, and in this, we want to consider not just the, the what of his wrath and judgment, but really the why. And the why has to do with an attribute of God called his justice. And it, and it goes something like this. Because God is altogether holy, he is, he is set apart from anything profane, anything wicked, anything evil. He is altogether righteous. There is indeed no sin in him, then his justice demands that any person or nation that sins against him must receive punishment. In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, it tells us that the Lord forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We see God's justice in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And this is the song of Moses towards the end of Moses' life. Speaking of the Lord, Moses says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. How many of God's ways are just? All of them. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now, righteousness is another attribute of God that goes hand in hand with his justice, dictating that anything God does is altogether right. And that God is actually the standard for what is right and what is just. And remember, too, that that righteousness and even justice are communicable attributes. In other words, they are attributes of God, but they're also attributes of God that he passes on to us. His creation, all of us, having been made into the image of God, have some sense of justice and some sense of righteousness. Now, you may be wondering, okay, but, but you know, instead of, of punishment for all, couldn't God, you know, I've just chosen to give us all grace, every person in the world since time, and, and just kind of... Just kind of wipe everybody's slate clean, their slates clean, so that everybody can can come to heaven and be with him. He could, he could, but then he wouldn't be righteous and just. Think about this. Uh, imagine, imagine if, uh, uh, imagine if you robbed a bank. Okay, times are tough, and you go in and you know gunpoint the whole bit, and you rob a bank. And, of course, uh, they capture you. They capture you, and uh, you go before the judge. And we're, for the sake of the story, there's, there's no jury here. It's just the judge gets to decide your fate. And, um, and the judge is like, you know, we, they, they caught you on multiple video cameras. It's, it's obvious that you perpetrated this crime. It's obviously you. You robbed this bank. You held people up at gunpoint. But here's the thing, you know, I, I, it's my birthday today and, and I'm just I'm just feeling like I'm in a good mood as a judge. And, the, you know, the sun is shining and the birds are singing and and uh, 
I just, man, I don't want to sentence you to, you know, prison time. And you know what? Just go, go get out of my courtroom. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Now, if you all were sitting in the courtroom, what would you cry out? Ah, that's unfair. You are an unjust judge. You are not a righteous judge at all because because justice wasn't served. You need to to serve and execute justice. God has to bring about his justice by way of his wrath. Or again, he wouldn't be a just and righteous God. And at that point, he wouldn't be any God of the Bible, would he? Even where our salvation is concerned, friends, well, God extends to us grace, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Someone still had to pay the price. Someone had to pay the price. Someone had to be punished for our sins. And, and, and instead of that, someone being you or I, because our punishment would be eternal punishment, because that's the nature of our sin against God. God chose instead to punish his very own son. A son who willingly accepted that punishment. And that is the amazing truth about God's justice and God's righteousness. That in doing what is just and right, he would be willing to punish his own son. And think about this, his own son who did no wrong. His own son who is absolutely perfect and righteous and altogether holy. This son of his was sent to the cross unjustly by the hands of wicked men. Think about this for a second. There's a lot of us here, I would imagine this morning, who would willingly die for somebody. Maybe you are a husband who would die for his wife. Maybe you are a, a mom who would die for her children. Maybe you are somebody who just has a family member, a close friend, that yes, you would be willing to lay down your life for them. We have service people in our country that will lay down their lives for their country. But imagine being a parent and offering up your child to die for someone else, to die for someone else who has actually done nothing but acted hatefully toward you. That is what God does for us by way of his son. That is the, the immense and unfathomable love of God. Friends, love being, of course, another one of his attributes. As he says, God says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And part of his justice involves his wrath. In the Old Testament, wrath is understood as anger, Rage, fury, heat, poison, and venom. When we get to the New Testament, it's defined as anger, indignation, vengeance. For God, it is utter abhorrence of sin. 
with the effects of God's wrath being divine judgment and punishment to be inflicted upon the wicked. So let's just take a a few minutes here and consider some key examples of God's judgment and wrath from the scriptures. You know, keep your bookmark there in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5 and let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I imagine this will be a text familiar to just about all of you. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 6, there's a, a biblical estimate of time based on scripture here, that has passed since the time of Adam and Eve to get us to Genesis 6. And it's approximately 1,656 years. So that's how much time has elapsed since uh, Adam and Eve. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It's at this time that Moses records for us in Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw. That the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And let me put in parentheses here. It's not just Noah, of course, but his wife and three sons and their three uh, wives. Uh, skip down to verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Skip down to verse 17. Behold, I, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And of course, friends, God has Noah build this tremendous ark to house his family and the animals as God wipes out every living thing from the face of the earth by a global flood. This is God executing his righteous justice, his judgment and wrath upon not just all people, but even animals and and everything else that's upon the earth and that might make us think well okay why why doesn't god stick to just you know people if they're the wicked ones because god decided um, to curse all of creation back at the beginning of genesis there in chapter three as a consequence for adam and eve's sin back in the garden of eden they wouldn't just be cursed but all of creation would be cursed and in so doing in, in, in bringing about these curses, God then allowed sin to come into the world, thereby corrupting every aspect of what he had made from people to animals to the plants and trees and, and every living organism would then have God's curse upon it. And, and think about it. I mean, this makes sense because this is why we have death and disease This is why we have natural disasters and holes in the ozone and ice caps melting and sea levels rising and pollution and drought and famine and and animals that want to eat us. And, you know, 
noxious weeds, poison oak and poison ivy. We, we would, oh man, we had this weed up in Trinity County called Goathead. Oh, it was just nasty. And it would get these, these, these thorny things, triple thorns. In fact, when you pulled one off, it actually looked like Satan. I'm not kidding you. It had pink two horns here and like a little mustache. And it's like, ah, it makes sense that we would have this, 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 this weed, this goathead, just nasty stuff. All a product of the fall. So when God decided to exact his judgment and wrath, he did so across the planet. The whole planet. And yet, what do we see in God's justice, but him also keeping a remnant? Those made in his image who would believe in him and believe in his promises and who would then be saved even while he was exacting his wrath. Right. And we see that, of course, with Noah and his family. In other words, God's judgment and wrath isn't just about the negative consequences for the disobedient. But in it, we also see his preservation or 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 uh, how it helps to preserve those whom he loved from those consequences. He preserves those he loves from those consequences. And I go, okay, does that sound familiar? Just think about our first Thessalonians chapter four and chapter five. God's wrath and judgment we're talking about, but even with the rapture, how he is saving, rescuing those that have loved him and loved his son. Some other Old Testament situations just briefly of God exacting his judgment and wrath upon the wicked include the fire and brimstone that came down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the 10 plagues that were sent to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, followed by God just burying Pharaoh's army under the, the Red Sea. And, and again, even in that, even in those, we see God's preservation, right? We, we see uh, Moses and the people going through the Red Sea and coming out on the other side. We also see how he brought Lot and his family safely through, save for Lot's wife, who disobediently did what? Looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And again, in the Exodus, uh, he preserved his remnant, the people of Israel. Unfortunately, God would bring about his wrath against Israel's sinful disobedience by not allowing that first generation of the Exodus to enter into the rest of his promised land. And yet the next generation was allowed in another remnant that is mercifully spared from God's wrath. We might fast forward then to the Babylonian exile where because of the sinfulness of God's people, yet again, his wrath has carried them off to be enslaved to a foreign nation far from home. But again, there are those who remain faithful to the Lord. People like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and also others who were then allowed to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Fast forward again to God's wrath upon His son. Wrath that is meant for you and I. Wrath that is meant for wicked, evil sinners such as we are. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we see the father appeasing his own wrath by striking, smiting, afflicting, piercing, crushing, chastening, and scourging his very own son. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his, Jesus' soul, he, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. That's, that's amazing. That is, that's hallelujah. What a Savior. What a, what a God. What a God that he would do that to his Son on our behalf, preserving yet again a remnant, those that would believe in him, us. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 35, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, And he went a little beyond them, meaning the disciples, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. In parentheses here, I I would say referring to the upcoming time of God's wrath that would come upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And he's referring there to the cup of God's wrath that will, in short order, be poured out upon him. But then Jesus adds these words, Yet not what I will, but what you will. And Luke reports, of course, that things were so intense for Christ that that his sweat became like drops of blood. His sweat became like drops of blood. Then, of course, we have those three hours where Christ hung on the cross. As Matthew describes in chapter 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus then received the full force of God's judgment and wrath upon himself as our sin bearer. And yet, what do we see again, friends? But through this wrath of God put onto his son, the deliverance of many, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life with God and his son. And so this brings us to the occasion of God's wrath here in our passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 9, which which includes this day of the Lord and the destruction that comes with it in verses 2 to 4. And as we noted uh, in our two messages ago when we explored the day of the Lord and what that was all about, we came to understand that it was this specific period of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth that would take place in the context of the end times, end times events. That is, after the rapture, leading up to Jesus' physical return to earth. There's three primary places. I say primary because there are some others, but we'll say primary places in Scripture where we learn about these events. You have the Old Testament, including the books of uh, Daniel, Joel, and of course some of the other Old Testament prophets. Then we have the Gospels, of course. And then we have the book of Revelation, for those primary places. So, so go ahead and turn with me to Joel chapter 3 verse 30. This is a passage we looked at last week. But Joel chapter 3 verse 30. Coming right after Hosea there. And right before Amos. So wedged in between Hosea and Amos. The book of Joel. Chapter 3. Verse 30, obviously we, we don't have oh, time to do an exhaustive study on, on all of God's wrath that will take place at this time. 
But I want you to at least get a little bit more of an overview of, of what is going on when we talk about God's wrath and, and what should be expected. These verses that we, that we read last week take place during this tribulation period, that seven-year tribulation period. Look at Joel 3, beginning in verse 30. Uh, excuse me. What did I say? Joel 2. Oh, gosh, I keep doing that, don't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for keeping me honest there. Joel 2, verse 30. (laughs) Joel writes, on behalf of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, right? There's that remnant, that remnant uh, that we've been talking about, people that will be delivered. He continues, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. Now, wait a minute. You, you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, hold on there, because didn't we learn back in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 3 that there will be no escape? Well, we learn there will not be escape for those who are what? Living in darkness. There will be escape for those living in darkness. Light, God's light, believers, right? Joel continues into chapter 3 with God's further judgment upon the nations of the earth, all the while again preserving this remnant of those who would love him. Now, as I said, another book that is, uh, that is key in giving us times of prophecy is Daniel. And unfortunately, we, we just won't have time to go there this morning, but I'll just briefly share this with you. Daniel is living in Babylon during the Babylonian exile. And beginning in chapter 7, Daniel starts to just get some crazy, terrifying visions from God about future events, including times of destruction and abominations and desolations, culminating eventually in the return of God's Messiah, Jesus back to earth. The angel Gabriel even shows up to explain these visions to Daniel and in so doing presents to Daniel really a meticulous timeline of these events. And this is, for instance, how we we come to know that there will be a tribulation period of God's judgment and wrath for seven years. And after the first three and a half years, as I mentioned, we'll have what is called the abomination of desolation in Daniel 12, 11. This will occur with that man of lawlessness. We call him the Antichrist. Goes in, he desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. This then kicks off that next three and a half years of tribulation that we call the Great Tribulation, where things just get exponentially worse. And yet, as we have seen in each situation of God's judgment and wrath, there are still those who are saved. There's always a remnant of God's people who will be saved delivered through those floodwaters, if you will. Then when we get to the gospel, and again, I wish we had more time, and that, well, that'll be another time. It'll be another time where we'll blow out some of these other, other aspects of, of eschatology and end times events like getting into Daniel, etc. But we get to the gospels, the good news of, of Jesus, and especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus then get very explicit about some of the end times events that will take place as he's letting the disciples kind of know what they should expect prior to his return back to earth. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. 
This is all laid out by Jesus in what is known as his Olivet Discourse. It's that time when during the week of his crucifixion, he takes his disciples out of the city across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. That is also where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And he answers their questions about the signs of his return and the end of the age. And what he shares with them pertains to the seven-year tribulation period. And he starts by focusing on that first three and a half years, telling them that there will be many false prophets coming in his name to try and mislead many. We see that in verses four to five. There will be wars and rumors of wars between nations and kingdoms. That's in uh, uh, chapter 24, verses six to seven. There will be famines and earthquakes, uh, verse seven. Luke adds plagues, terrors, and great signs from heaven in Luke 21, 11. And those that would become Christians during this time will be hated. They will be killed with many professing believers falling away, betraying and even hating one another. Verses 9 to 10. Many false prophets will arise. Lawlessness will increase and people's love will grow cold. Verses 11 to 12. That's the easy part. Really, that's that's the lightweight part of this tribulation period. As we said from Daniel, uh, and now corroborated by Jesus, the second three and a half years get kicked off by this abomination of desolation involving that man of lawlessness, the Antichrist desecrating the temple. This is when things really start to get nasty. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And it could have been a lot longer. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or or there he is. Do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Verse 25, behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right? Everybody will see. Everybody will know when this happens. That's my little parentheses. That's not in the scripture. Verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power And great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of the sky to the other. Friends, this is is that final gathering then. Even of all believers. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And tribulation martyrs. And those who became Christians during the tribulation Period, And those that even live through that tribulation period into the second coming. 
And the last place in the scriptures for God's judgment and wrath that will take place during the seven years of tribulation or primary place that we see this, we find his judgments in the book of Revelation and know that God's judgments during the tribulation period are divided into three groups of seven judgments each, the first of which are the seal judgments. They are uh, here they are beginning with the seal judgments. Excuse me. The seal judgments begin in chapter six of Revelation. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to just I'm going to read these off kind of quickly. Okay. And I'm sorry for being quick about this. It's it's just we're we're going for this big overview of God's wrath. But here's the seal judgments, chapter six uh, to eight. Chapter six to eight. We see white horse and its rider conquering God's enemies. A red horse and a rider who makes war. A black horse and rider which brings famine. A pale horse and rider which brings death. Then we have martyrs, those that will die for their faith. There's the great day of wrath with an earthquake and signs from heaven. That is, the sun is blackened, the moon like blood stars from the sky, right? We heard that from Jesus. We heard that from Peter when he preached on the day of Pentecost. We heard that in Joel. We have trumpet judgments. That's the seventh. The seventh judgment is the next set of judgments. The trumpet judgments in chapters 8 to 11 of Revelation. Where number one, we have hail, fire destroys a third of the earth. Mountain of fire is tossed into the sea and one third of the sea creatures are destroyed. The third one, there's a star called Wormwood which falls and contaminates one third of all the fresh water. Number four, one third of the sun, moon and stars are darkened. Number five, an angel releases locusts with power, the power of scorpions from the abyss to sting and torment those on the earth. Number six, Four angels slay one-third of the earth's population. And the seventh is an announcement of the Lord's victory, which then brings in the bold judgments. The bold judgments. Soars for those with the mark of the beast who worship the beast. Secondly, the sea becomes blood and all marine life dies. Thirdly, fresh water gets turned into blood. Fourth, scorching sun burns people. Five, darkness and pain on the beast's Kingdom 6, the Euphrates River dries up and kings assemble for war at Armageddon. And 7, there is a severe earthquake with great hailstones that are 100 pounds each. You think we got problems? You think our social political climate out there is bad? Kind of makes it seem like a cakewalk. That is the judgment and wrath of God to come, friends. Let's get back to our third point. Destinations for darkness of light. Letter B, the light, the destination is God's salvation. The second destination is for those of the light, believers, Christians. Look at verse 9 and we'll go back to our... Thessalonians passage, Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Hallelujah. What a savior. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. <sighs> Friends, this is incredible news. God has said that none of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would suffer divine consequences for sin. There may be earthly consequences, right? I mean, you go in and rob the bank, like we talked about, you're going to go to jail. That's the earthly consequence. But there's no divine consequences for those that truly have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For true believers of Jesus, there will be no divine 
wrath. As Paul says in Romans 8 verses 1 to 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And not only will we, the church, escape this 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 wrath and judgment by means of the rapture. But we are also exempt from God's eternal judgment and wrath that would sentence us to forever in hell in the lake of fire. And how is this accomplished? Well, just what our text says through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And we talked about this in-depthly last week, right, in terms of the gospel. And of course, it's by means of this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ come to save sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, that classic text that Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that He would take our place on the cross, that He would die in our place, that He would take take, take all of our, our sin and, and, the, and the judgment and wrath meant for us upon himself, that he would become sin for us, as we said, be a sin bearer for us. And not just that he would die, but he would resurrect three days later so that we would know indeed that that's true and that our sins have been forgiven and we have that promise of eternal life for those that would repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ. And then here's the result Even the blessing of us not being under God's divine judgment and wrath, but rather being saved through his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of his son. This is in in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the latter part. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And the context tells us this is this this being awake This being awake is being alive, right? Physically alive, living. This asleep reference, now Paul takes us back to his euphemistic way where he means for sleep as in death, dead, physically speaking. And and just to again go back to the rapture of 4, 13 to 18, where those who have died in Christ will first rise and meet the Lord in the air, followed by those who are alive, they will also rise and meet the Lord in the air. These are those who live And as Paul said back in verse 17, so we shall always be with the Lord. This is what's important here, friends. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verses 1 to 3, on the eve of his crucifixion, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What did Jesus say to the repentant thief on the cross? But today you will be with 
me in paradise. Revelation 21 and verse 3, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And as I said in a previous message, the point, friends, the point of your salvation and eternal life is not just to enjoy God's kingdom in the sense of, oh, you're going to have this awesome, incredible, glorified body that can do all kinds of amazing things, a sinless body. It's not even about just eating and drinking in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb or, or, or moving into the most amazing dwelling place or mansion that you have ever had or or it's not about receiving the many heavenly rewards that await you but rather it is to be eternally with christ amen that's what it's about that is that is the great blessing of living in the light of 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 Eternal life with Christ, of knowing Christ. Yes, you and I will be blessed by all of those other things. Oh, we will glory and there will be glorious and wonderful and amazing. But again, it will be so great and wonderful because we are doing those things with Jesus. With Him unto eternity. We need to wrap things up here. So for this morning, our, our wrap-up is... is uh, our application time will be our our fourth point, okay? It'll go fairly quick here, but it's a directive for people of light. At the end of our text, we're given this directive for people of light. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. In other words, because you are light and not darkness, you are of the day, you are not of night because you are Believers who are not destined for God's judgment and wrath, but rather you are destined for glory. Paul says, continue to do as you've been doing. Continue encouraging one another and building up one another and, 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 and help each other to stay alert and sober by, by encouraging one another with the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And friends, how you and I do this, practically speaking... We have to do it together. We have to be together. You've already mentioned Lone Ranger Christianity. It can't be that. It was never meant to be that. So how specifically can you do this? Here's just a few things. Real quick, real quick. Make sure that you're here on Sunday morning. At Calvary Bible Church. Right? No excuses. I understand there are those that are sick and that's okay. We understand that. Those that, 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 that can't come for, for a reason like that. But man, if you're just at home, you're like, oh man, this whole COVID thing. And now I'm just, oh, I like being in my PJs and my bunny slippers. And I got my coffee and my Danish. And I can just tune in and kind of, you know, call it in that way. That's an excuse. Get to church. Be here at church to be with the... The fellowship of the saints here. Secondly, be involved in it. I wasn't promoting the fellowship of the saints group, by the way, there, okay? Just, you know, Crossroads still has Joan Gaston, so. Yeah. But be involved in a fellowship group. That's the other thing. Be involved in a fellowship group. Please don't slip out after church. Slip in, slip out, you know? Go in the side door. Oh, I wish they had the back door open. I'd be using that, you know? 
You got to be here, right? Be involved in a small group, Bible study, or one-on-one discipleship. Come and pray on Wednesday nights and see if that doesn't encourage you and build you up as you seek to do that for others. That's a tremendous time to encourage one another and build each other up. Come to the fellowship gatherings that the church sponsors and has and invite people into your home and accept invitations into other people's homes, right? Meet folks for coffee or a meal somewhere else. Send a card, text, email, Call somebody on the phone. And when you do all of these things, can I suggest to you that you move the conversation from beyond just the weather or the latest sports? Talk about spiritual things. Talk about spiritual things. Ask your brothers and sisters, how's your soul? What's going on in your life? What's the Lord showing you lately? What have you been learning in your in your devotion times? What have you been learning from the messages? What what you know what? How can I pray for you? If you ask that question, you dang well better pray for him. Don't you ever ask somebody that and then not pray for him? Can I make one more suggestion? You pray for them right then and there. Don't don't say oh I'll keep that in mind. I'll put you on my prayer list, my prayer journal. Right? No, stop right there and say hey, can I pray for you right now? And then you do. And you know what? Maybe you're in the middle of a grocery store. So what? So what? You think, well, maybe I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable. I'll tell you what. I used to think that. Here's the thing that I've, I've learned is that, I've got to finish up here, is that, is that in, the, in those cases, I have never had one person, even an unbeliever, I've never had one person that I asked to pray for at a certain time say, no. Please don't. It's kind of embarrassing. It just, it, just, it just hasn't happened. So ask people how their soul is doing. Ask them what they've been learning from Scripture. Listen to see if you need to be an encourager to them, if maybe they need some building up, or, or if you're the one that needs encouragement or, or the building up. Remind each other of the tremendous promises of God that we've been learning about and ask them how you can pray for them, and then do it. Just pray for them right then and there. Stand up. Stand up. Please. Please. Here's your benediction. We'll get the band up here for our last song. I'm really working hard at finishing so we get everybody out on time. This is from uh, Romans, Romans chapter 13. Here's your benediction. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Do this. The do this, by the way, the context there is loving others. Do this. Love others one another love one another do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed do you believe it amen let's pray father we thank you lord for the day we thank you for this time in your word i pray lord that we would be good encouragers and and that we would seek to build up one another with these truths that we have learned about this morning regarding your judgment and your wrath, but especially, Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Father, that we are not under condemnation through Christ Jesus, but we will be blessed to to, uh, have a divine rescuing from that wrath. I pray for any here this morning that need to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, that you will convict them in their heart and that they would repent and believe. And we pray all of this in your Son's name. 
Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.